I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. This evening we're delighted to welcome back Jonathan Lethem and Benjamin Markovitz, who having both spoken here before on separate occasions, are here together this evening to discuss Jonathan's new novel, Dissident Gardens, the story of three generations of a radical New York family published by Jonathan Cape. Jonathan's other novels include The Fortress of Solitude and Chronic City, which Jonathan came to discuss at the shop in 2010 with Tom McCarthy. Benjamin Markowitz is the author of Playing Days and A Quiet Adjustment and was named as one of Grant's best young British novelists in 2013. He previously appeared at the LLB shop in conversation with Daniel Kaleman in 2011 as part of our World Literature Weekend. Both events, incidentally, are available as podcasts on our website. The talk will last approximately 40 minutes um, and there will be time for questions afterwards. I'll be around with the mic. Um, our authors have also kindly agreed to stay and sign afterwards and there's plenty of the books here. Please join me in a very, very warm welcome for Jonathan Lethem and Benjamin Markovitz. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks for coming. So my idea is that we're going to have a kind of conversation in front of you. I, I met Jonathan maybe 10 years ago, just before my own first book came out and when The Fortress of Solitude was, was being published by Faber. And we really haven't spoken since, apart from five minutes down below. So we're going to air it in public. Um, I, I sent you an, an email after reading your book saying that I felt like we had strangely distorted versions of the same background. And I'll explain quickly what I mean by that. Um, Mitteleuropäisch, Jewish, the convergence of American popular culture and some sort of relationship to, to race relations uh, growing up in America. And all of those things are in this book right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm excited to talk with you because um, it seems like you do uh, accumulate a lot of the same touchstones in your work, um, although they're translated in really different ways. Maybe it is a sort of in, inverted way, which might have to do partly with your, um, you know, uh, expatriate life. And and I'm, you know, I've been a, a very helplessly an American writer, and I feel like it, this book represents my first little groping attempts to um, globalize, <laughs> uh, to... to to say that I know that the rest of the world exists, you know, outside of like, you know, the five blocks I grew up on, 
um, in in uh, in Brooklyn. Um, so so it's an exciting time to to um, to compare notes. I'm I'm really I'm really uh, glad you're. I've just this. opened the book to a cheeky yeah. curveball question I can ask you. Maybe I'll right. save it for later. Just to, to, for the purposes of this conversation, I'll be using my American accent. Um, <laughs> one of the things that strikes me about the difficulties of being an American writer that's distinct from the difficulties you face as, say, a middle-class English writer is that I feel one of the problems of being the American middle-class writer is that you have no native idiom. You have a lot of borrowed idioms. And there's yeah. one of the things you can borrow, and you do a lot of that in this book. You borrow Jewish idiom, yeah, um, and you're borrowing other kinds of idiom. Are you conscious of that? As you, I mean, you you fuse a lot of idioms in your work. Is that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think of I think of myself as as being a um, privileged to have a kind of magpie relationship to uh, to vernaculars in the plural, and that they're they're available to me. But I guess I could also see it as. Uh, a kind of um, structural disenfranchisement that I'm, I'm only a browser. <laughs> and you and feel that. You feel I that feel it for yeah. sure. I mean, if you look at uh, The Fortress of Solitude, it's really a book about feeling that you're uh, kind of pressed to the glass of cultural languages, uh, wanting one of your own and trying to assemble it from received, re- received parts, which is the kind of the despairing uh, stance but I, you know, growing up, I should say, since this is going to be a conversation partly about coming, coming, comings of age, uh, as as a as a person as well as uh, a writer, I always felt, you know, really lucky that I was, um, you know, I was kind of born a shapeshifter. My parents offered a kind of menu of identities, and I, I, I found myself um, really able to try on different things and and play at different things and sometimes also found it really difficult to explain to people why I didn't, for instance, um, act more persuasively Jewish. You know, I had, a, I, had, I had some of the things that go with it. I had a Jewish mother and I grew up in New York City and I could certainly hit some of the marks, but I'd also been raised as a Quaker and as a hippie and in a way the arts were the religion in my household more than any uh, – Anything mis- mystical or, or um, uh, you know, um, any other kind of legacy that was the one that that I identified with most most directly. So I felt I, you know, it's a good training for a writer. I mean, if we saw your your, your juvenilia, would it involve? Are you going to show us your juvenilia now? Um, <laughs> would it involve oh, yeah, got the some, same? Got some right here. <laughs> the same blend of voices, or would you have? <laughs> yeah, I've been in this country long enough. I really don't know. I mean, yeah. all accents feel fake to me, um, including this one, uh, and and yeah. it's a problem. I, and one of the things that impresses me, uh, I mean, you, you do it in this book and you do it in, in others. For example, is your adoption of uh, you know, a, a, an identifiably black American voice, and that's hard to do. Maybe harder for me, if, you know, growing up in Texas. I don't know if you were more comfortable with it growing up in New York. Well, it was. Um it was there. <laughs> it was present. It was on the doorstep. I mean, one of the um, the models for for um, for I'm, I'm sorry, I'm coming back to the Fortress of Solitude again, but you're drawing me back to yeah. it. One of the models for that book is a one of the great Jewish American books, Call It Sleep, by Henry Roth. And one of the things about Call It Sleep 
that was so stirring and and um, created this overwhelming identification in me is that the boy in that book speaks one language inside his house and another when he gets pushed down the stoop to play with the kids. Now, in 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 and and Roth renders this in the most remarkable way because it's two different versions of English, but they're as divergent as can be. Of course, what's tr- the truth of that story is he's speaking Yiddish translated into English in the home, and he's hearing English spoken in a kind of Bowery Boys, you know, 1930s vernacular, you know, little rascals style English is the English he's hearing on the street when he goes outside. So he, and he's, it, it makes his world kind of, um, you know, in, incomprehensibly bifurcated, trying to explain to his mother in Yiddish what is going on in his life on the street with these kids. Well, I felt this, except, of course, really, it was two versions of English. It was, a, uh, my father was a professor, a, pay, a, a art teacher, and, um, and a, you know, a Quaker and a war protester. He grew up in the Midwest. My mother was a, a kind of Jewish intellectual dropout hippie. So it was a kind of a, a, a privileged, culturally privileged Bohemian English being spoken inside the house, and it was black talk. The minute I went out to s- play on the street, I was navigating what black kids talked like and how they, uh, not just not just what they sounded like, but how that uh, vernacular uh, encompassed a different set of codes about power and social status and and you know the dynamics of being a child on the street in New York City, and they were as untranslatable these two languages I was speaking as Yiddish and, you know, as Henry Roth's Yiddish and the street English. And so um, it was there for me. But, of course, it was also decisively not mine. <laughs> I wasn't black, and I knew it. It was the first thing I was told in that language is you're not right. <laughs> you don't – you can't function here. You're going to be um, a, a tourist. And so, you know, um, it was available but, but in a – in a disempowering <coughs> sort of way. You, you've inverted that process a little bit in Dissident Gardens with the character of Cicero, mm-hmm. who acquires yeah. kind of theory speak from the Jewish intellectual right. socialist mother that runs against the grain of his cop dad's middle class, lower middle class family. Is yeah. that fair to say? Yeah. Were you conscious of? of I was playing games with his voice in that w- Well, I was excited to try to um, – I mean, it was – in some ways, I felt it was Cicero's book. The first thing I wrote was in his viewpoint. Can you say quickly who he is for those who haven't yes, read the, 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 we the so, so in this cast of characters in Dissident Gardens, um, there's a kind of a, uh unwilling, semi-adopted ward of the, the overpowering – Kami grandmother, and he's a he's a a kid, a black kid, who is the son of her lover at the time. Rose is the the the, the Kami grandmother, and Rose is sleeping with uh, a black police lieutenant in Queens in the neighborhood. Um, they're having a an affair, and she sort of gloms on to the policeman's son, and this is Cicero, who in some ways I think is the, you know, um, 
he's not the main character in the book, but he's the he's the presiding, you know, the brain voice of the book really belongs to him. And it, he's where I began the book. And in a way, he was my way of uh, achieving some distance from an unbearable freight of, you know, Jewish family legacy. Because what he does in the book is he says, get over yourselves. <laughs> Stop romanticizing this legacy. Uh, it's not worth thinking about. You blew it. <laughs> the communists don't exist anymore. Just, you know, in a way, if he had, if he had a choice, he would say, don't write the book. <laughs> well, I didn't quite let him dominate me to that degree, but I did want to let that resistance be embodied. You know, he basically is saying there are deeper grievances than the ones that you Jews are are airing out. His his sort of, you know, if you think of, uh, and I don't know if this describes your relation to writing character at all, but if you think of a character both as a reader and sometimes as a writer as having a note when you strike them, like a tuning fork. His his note is the debunking note. That's what yeah. he he yeah. he undermines. Yeah, I think uh, he's called he calls himself in his thinking a debunking engine. Right uh, at one point, and yeah, he's absorbed the parts of uh, you know of theory, both Freudian theory and post Freudian theory and Marxist and post post Marxist theory that expose everything that say you don't know what you want, you don't know what you're doing, <laughs> you're enslaved. You're, you're, you know, you think you're acting, but you're actually just reacting. Uh, but he hasn't found something uh, after the critique. So it, it seems to me that one of the this is a maybe needlessly grand statement, but one of the things that's interesting about fictional representations of ideas is that fiction allows you to undermine everything. And in this case, you've also undermined the underminer, because it's not just that he has no positive view to replace the things that he's attacking. Yeah. But you also make him, to a certain extent, full of shit. Um, in the seminar scene that comes yeah. out in an uncomfortable way, there's a scene in which he tries to get... And I was very interested in the teaching scenes because we, we both teach. And one of the things that occurs to you when you're teaching is that you have a room full of people who are now unimaginably distant from you in terms of age. Um, and you can talk to them about anything, especially in a creative writing class. And that's sort of the line that Cicero takes to see what happens, what kind of thing will, will emerge. And something unpleasant emerges when he tries to get them to do what he's trying to do to your book as a whole. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's a, he's a provocation artist. And, I mean, I, I think implicit in that scene is the idea that there are days where he goes into the classroom and whatever anyone else would think, he thinks, gotcha, <laughs> that, it, that he scored, that he, like, burned his students' assumptions to the ground and left them at his mercy. And then I show you a day when he's, he's you know, completely pratfalls, when his, all his standard gestures are hung out to dry and the students are just kind of arching their eyebrow at him. And, of course, you know, this is typical of, you know, my – what I do to my characters uh, – it turns, you know, it turns out he's got something more at stake than he realized. That the reason he blew it in the day I, I, I show him walking into the classroom is that he thought the material was out here, but the material was stuck deep in his own heart like a dagger. I'm, I'm not going to give too much away, but there's a, he has a, an ultimately tender relationship with this communist uh, matriarchal figure who presides 
over the whole, whole book. So you've given, you know, her legacy turns out to be the guy who tells her you should get over it, right? That's the, yeah. that's her, his, her intellectual inheritor. I, you know, and I left the book, you know, the book has a lot to say about countercultural feeling and countercultural living. And I'm not sure where you stand, which I think mm. is, is good on I'm not on sure that. where I stand either. I mean, I really mean that. I, I wrote the book out of my perplexities at, at, at having this legacy in my body of, you know, wanting to, to believe in collectives and communes, feeling them as, um, you know, a deep imprint on my, on my psyche and something that I, I'm inspired by and totally wary of when I realize I'm in a new some new framework, you know, some, that, that speaks of that ideal that, that you know, um, you know, and I, and I, I think that um, if you look at what I write about, I write it again and again and again about the fragility of, um, of collective moments, you know, a neighborhood, a bunch of kids on the street who feel like they're one thing for a summer and then reality comes and destroys that or gentrification comes and wrecks the the scene or a rock band that's has this beautiful alchemy for one song and then breaks up or you know the feeling that people have in a family that it feels so enormous and permanent and then the world wrecks the family or 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 you know in some of my sort of science fictiony stories the the world itself is taken away it's wrecked and and I and and yet, what goes on inside those spaces—the rock band, or the, you know, the political movement, or the family, or the neighborhood—is real while it's real. I'm, I I might seem very sadistic in the way I'm always denying my characters sustainability in the in the in their, you know, uh, reaching for a sensation of being connected to other other people. Being, being allied with them. But I also think that what goes on in those spaces has to be witnessed and, and, and embraced. I wonder how much of the ambivalence to countercultural possibilities has to do with having small kids. <laughs> and, and I say, I mean, I've, I've, I've been thinking yeah. about it a lot, and, and there are a couple things that seem to go on when you have small kids. One is that society stops to matter in the same way. And the other is that when it stops to matter, life gets incredibly hard because <laughs> you're stuck with you know, the unit that's protecting yeah. you from society. And I think some of that comes across yeah. here. I wonder if that you were conscious Well, I, 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 I'm interested. I mean, I don't think I could credit my ambivalence to something so recent because I think it's, it, it, it's um, instead it's somehow it, it's life-defining. It's something that, you know, when I dropped out of college, I did it in a simultaneous gesture of you know radical independence i don't i don't need nobody but i also was like running away to berkeley california in some idiotic fantasy in a way of going back in time into the you know the beat generation so i was like you know always doing both and and it 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 replays itself in my in my life and in my work is is you know or my 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 relationship to teaching which has made such a beautiful home for me unexpectedly at this point in my life, you know, but I'm the ultimate exile from, you know, I'm dysfunctional with every organization that ever tried to uh, capture me, 
you know, up to this point. Has it changed the way you write? I mean, people have written about <laughs> the effect on being taught creative writing yeah. on the books that the, <laughs> the students produce. But it seems to me there's a lot to be said about the effect on the teachers who are still writing. Yeah. Has it changed how you yeah. write? Well, there's that great book, uh, Mark McGurl's The Program Era, yeah. which is, a, a, I think in many ways the subject is, what did it do to American writing that, that they began teaching? You know, uh, It's a real study uh, for sure. And, I, you know, I mean, one, one thing that's very humbling is to see how, um, how little any writer can help another yeah. writer. You know, that, that it's this, um, you know, in a way, it's, a, it's, a, it's an arena of Im- enormous good faith. I always think it's funny that people um, are cynical about writing programs because you can be sad about them. You can find them pathetic. But I think there's nothing calculating or, or, um, or, or uh, you know, they're actually really, uh, well, speak again of temporary utopias, these brief moments where, you know, I mean, lions don't go out in the wild and critique each other's fiction. It's one of those, it's that list of things that makes us human. It's very, very pathetic, peculiar. I don't peculiar. put up with what I do to my students. <laughs> I mean, do you put up with it? I mean, they, they, in some ways they seem tougher than us. Cause, you know, I think it's amazing I, that I they're willing it. to go into yeah. that space. I agree. I, I mean, I, I know that I personally had the opportunity in college, and I ran screaming yeah. from, from the, that site. So it's kind of an incredible piece of tenderness that they're all there on this presumption that they can uh, trust one another and, and, the, and that there might be something that they could help one another with. And then also, of course, it becomes very comical because we're so much more uh, blundering and literal in our, um, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like my, you know, my misguided, you know, uh, parlor communists going into a, a workers, going into like a Pennsylvania steel mill and trying to help the workers. I mean, how can you actually help anyone <laughs> make things that are so... Un, uh, you know, uh, sort of godforsaken and personal and and peculiar and resistant. Um, all you can do is just kind of um, help them feel better about the attempt, really. Uh, it, but it also it also goes, at least in my case, with a certain amount of self-loathing. You walk into the classroom and you start talking about how you have sex with your muse <laughs> when you're obviously not having sex with your muse, and and you start feeling really odd about. Yeah. What it is that you're doing? And I, you, I, I remind, I remind, I can't remember which Woody Allen movie it is when the the Jeff Goldblum character who's in Hollywood calls up his agent and says, "I've forgotten my mantra," <laughs> and you start coming out with mantras because you have to be able to articulate. You have to things. have something. Like, yeah. I mean, have you got what? You know, lay yeah. some mantras on me. What do, what do you? What do I? What have do you I got tell some me? mantras that you you hit your your kids with? I think I just forgot them. They all, all, all upon upon that anecdote, they all ran ran out of my head. But no, yeah, of course you do. You distill things into some kind of um, offering, uh, but um, all right, what do I what do I, what do I tell them? Um, I mean, one thing one thing that's actually true is that um, everyone is either uh, being too obscure or not obscure enough. Yeah. And once you see it as like a technical issue, like there's just this scale, and you've got to figure out how obscure to be. It can take away the mystery because the people who are being way too obscure feel very – they're like you know, sitting there with this sort of uh, absurd um, you-can't-fire-me-I-quit kind of defensive posture. Well, nobody got it, so I must be a genius. 
but, but nobody got it, so I'm all alone in this room, and everyone went around the table saying, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're trying to do here. Um, and then the people who, like, way over, you know, they, they overestablish everything. They tell you five times the, the basic situation. And, and everyone's like, you don't need to do that so much. And they're like, well, uh, you know, they're stuck with them. But it's actually it's just an adjustment. So to, to put it across and make it persuasive, you have to find this place where the reader feels that you've respected their intelligence and that they're almost making it up themselves or discovering it or helping you write it by reading it. And that's the right amount of explaining. You know? And it's just an adjustment. And every single student is going to be moved to that, you know, ideally, to that perfect spot from either telling you way, way too many times the most basic things so that you feel like, stop it, I'm not stupid. And anyway, that's not that interesting now that you've said it five times. To, you know, to the people who are writing this kind of fog of nested so, so metaphors. Which, which are you, too obscure, not obscure enough in your... <laughs> in my own, in in my own, own work. In your own work. I, I think that, that happens, right? It reflect, you say these things to them, yeah. and then suddenly you think, yeah. oh, Jesus. Um, yeah. I mostly I um, have ended up too obscure. Probably. Too obscure. <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> we won't leave it on that. Let's talk a little bit about the rest of the world and, 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 and this book, because I, I wanted to get in the word mitoevropeish. But one of the things, that, you know, the, uh, there's this wonderful exchange of letters. Exchange is not quite right at the heart of this book between the, the dad who's gone back to East Germany and his his mm-hmm. daughter who is it's, stuck around. It's it is an exchange because her letters are implicit in his replies. Her letters yeah. are implicit, that's right. Yeah. And then she has this long, you know, commune hippie, but she also very the, sober letter. The at, big rebuttal at, at the end. At, at the end, yeah. and and at one point in that rebuttal, she says something about how uh, her father's Europeanness is cabalistic, and involves yeah. involve yeah. involves him and her in ritual, which made a huge difference to her growing up. In America, a sense of ways of doing things, orders of doing things, certain objects that had come from the home country. Did you have that in your home? Is that well? I knew my great grandmother, who grew up a German, uh, and um, believed herself to be a German. She was a full. She uh, her city was Lubeck, and um, she and my my great grandfather, who didn't live long enough that I ever met him, were among the elite of Lubeck. He was a banker, and she was an opera singer. And they lived next door to Thomas Mann. And I have a snapshot she took of Thomas Mann kind of leaning on his um, back patio. It look, almost looks like an author photo, because I think Thomas Mann always you know, <laughs> made that scowl. He was never informal. But it's actually just an, uh, a, a, a personal snapshot. And she escaped only because they had the money and because someone made it clear to them as, you know, it wasn't always easy to make clear to the Jews who believed themselves really to be Germans that they were not going to be okay. And they escaped at the last second, and she lived the rest of her life in a welfare hotel, essentially, on Broadway. I mean, not a terrible one, but in a a one – bedroom apartment or really maybe a, you'd call it a studio apartment with her china and uh, and certain objects of furniture and speaking only German never 
able to learn English. She called me Yamatan. Yamatan, uh, yeah. So I had a glimpse of how, and and then and then okay. So then, as more or less occurs in this book, this is a part of the book that's very directly connected to family history. Her son, my grandfather, uh, Martin Frank, married badly <laughs> by the standards of a high German secularized Jewish family. He married um, a shtetl peasant Jew in New York, my grandmother, who I knew very well, big part of my life. You know, the other kind, the kind that comes from uh, a Polish, a town that like is Polish one day and then they move the line and there's a Russian town and they live in a totally Jewish community and they came to America and opened a candy store in Brooklyn, you know. And But of course the reason that these two people fell in love, my grandfather and my grandmother, was that they both were into communism, which is supposed to dissolve class and dissolve all these boundaries and things. And so they were going to live in an ideal world where even those two kinds of Jews <laughs> could could marry. And what well, didn't work out because they were both enmeshed in their personalities and their legacies and their and their families and um, and and he ran away and eventually repatriated to Germany to East Germany but my grandmother who obviously had an ambivalent relationship to the high German stuff conveyed to me this crazy double message of you know how beautiful and how totally corrupt it all was it was the best chocolate in the world. It was the best furniture in the world. It was the best china in the world. And I will never touch any of it again because it all was somehow nested together with the monstrosity of both her husband running away from her and the Nazis. So, yeah, it was a very uh, rich mess. <laughs> I mean, th this is what strikes me. I mean, this is the funny reflection. So um, my German family comes from Flensburg, which is really not far from, from Lübeck. And my mother is, is Christian and German. She grew up in Germany. I'm, I've got slightly closer ties to the country than you. You're, you're in Berlin now, but it was a big yeah. role, part of my childhood. And for me, I was a kid in Texas. My father was a New York Jew. My mother had never lived in Texas. This is common in America. You end up settling where nobody has any kind of roots at all. And then we would come back in the summer to go to Flensburg, and we lived on a street that had been in my mother's family for generations. My great-grandmother had named it. We used our German name Schultes when we were there, and the baker, who was known as the Junge Becker Petersen, because she, the young Becker Petersen, because she was 80, because the Olle Becker Petersen was still still around, would call us, would, would recognize us, and it was an incredibly powerful contrast to the possibility that I felt in America, in a provincial town, which is different from New York. I mean, I think a lot of the differences between the sorts of things that we're writing have to do with the New York. Texas difference. Yeah. And one of the things I emailed you is that it seemed to me always that family in, in my life was an anti-political force. And mm -hmm. in this book, family is a politicizing yeah. force. It involves you in community, involves you in ideas of community. And partly the families break up because of that. Yeah. Well, the multiple claims of different identities and different commitments, affiliations, you know, so rich but uh, with their, you know, like there's a bill to be paid. I mean, this is true also of Cicero, who, you know, becomes, pull, you know, he's, he's, he glimpses possibilities 
when when Rose begins to educate him. Mm. But those possibilities immediately exile him from his family. His family. Yeah. And you know, as Rose herself, when she told got up the courage to tell her father that she didn't believe in the Jewish God or in any God, that she was, you know, kind of a materialist. She didn't know the cost in her life, you know, mm -hmm. all the things that she was uh, freighting onto that one declaration and, and how communism had then better not let her down. It was the next God, you know, it was the replacement. Um, Is there a comment in the book about what's happened to the communism? I mean, so it, it turns into hippiedom and then it turns into occupied. And is, well, it, is it getting worse? Tur it turns getting... into isn't exactly no, the, right. yeah. the thing. I mean, it's partly the way uh, what it, what when when something is kind of uh, suffocated in disappointment and silence, the way for most, you know, party members and most fellow travelers as well, American communism was suffocated in remorse and embarrassment and silence by the end of you know, 1956 or shortly thereafter as the revelations about Stalin you know, sank in, right? And yet there had been this immense number of people visualizing another world, another possible world, and now it was all kind of stuck in their bodies. And where did it go and what does it mean and, and can it be admitted or does it have a, an aperture? And, you know, and then you have the, the folk movement and you have the new left and little things sneak through, but it's also a correction or a, or a, or a, a you know, a bookend. Really? It's another way of being uh, an American dissident and in some ways a much more cultural one, a much more, you know, um, bohemian one. And the things that are refused in the previous generation are certainly as defining in the new left as the things that were, that, you know, that could be uh, recaptured. You talk about Buddenbrooks in, in the book. Are you a fan of Buddenbrooks? Does it mean something to you? I actually haven't read it for a long, yeah. long time. I, I'd like to read it again now that I've ended up having to <laughs> um, talk about it so much so I'll, I won't feel so full of shit. But, um, I mean, Thomas Mann was, was interesting to me, but I read him too early. Because of this family connection, he was all gnarled up with this legacy and – I, you know, I read The Magic Mountain way before I could have understood what that was about, or Buddenbrooks before I wa really wanted – I didn't have an appetite. I do now for that kind of, um, you know, socially uh, mediated family saga. I really should take a look at it. But I – actually, the Thomas Mann that meant the most to me, if I'm honest, when I was young was the, the one who worked in shorter lengths and, you know, his stuff – demanded less of me in terms of con contextual understanding. You know, like uh, Death in Venice, or there's a great short story called The Wardrobe. And those ones I could actually make something of. I mean, Buddenbrook's always disappointed me a little bit. I mean, it's, it, I read it maybe a, a year or two ago, and it didn't convey enough of the warmth, I thought. Mm. You know, the cohesive yeah. power of, of family life. It was, I mean, it was very cold. It was very sar mm. sarcastic. And that's not what I want from a family saga. Yeah. Actually, I want something that's, yeah. that says the, the, something about the depth of connections and the, the, un, the, the unavoidable connections, the things you can't really yeah. get away from. Um, this book, you know, I, I think it, I've been quoting you. I don't know if this is one of your lines or not, but in, in one of your books you say, I think, something like you've got a character 
who's obsessed with childhood. And someone says to them, why are you so obsessed with childhood? And the guy says, because it's, it's the only period in my life in, in, in which I wasn't obsessed with childhood. Um, is that you? Is that yeah, yeah, I think the ex it's in Fortress of Solitude, and the exact line is that uh, he, the, my childhood is the only part of my life that wasn't overshadowed by my childhood. Uh -huh. yeah. um, and you don't go back to 1930. This is different, right? Is it, does it feel different writing oh, from, yeah. from uh, research than on it a, does from On a task level, uh, on a craft level, this book demanded all kinds of things of, of me that I didn't know. I had never summoned up, and I didn't. Uh, feel confident about. I had to, I would really never have written about a period uh, and tried to make a period credible that I didn't feel somatically, like I was on the streets of New York City taking in information. Even if I shorted up with research, as I did for Chronic City or for The Fortress of Solitude or, or Motherless Brooklyn, that stuff begins with knowledge that's, that, that um, I can claim Absolutely. And here, you know, writing about the, I forget the 1930s, even writing about the 1950s, you know, I, I, I listened to my mother carefully, and I felt a lot about her coming of age. It's something that I've, you know, mused on my whole life. I think that she was a very stirring person to hear talk, and I was super attentive. That's a kind of physical knowledge, but it's still a crazy leap. To just write about people walking down the street, you know, uh, in Greenwich Village, in a, in a world I want the reader to invest in totally as like a kind of, you know, that in that way. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com that fiction can be and that my fiction has recently sought to be kind of commemorative or reconstructive, like it's going to make the world again. Well, I wanted to make the 1950s and, and even the 1930s so that you would believe you were inside it through those chapters. And that was involved a horrendous amount of research just to – not because I wanted to put the facts into the book. Most of them didn't belong in the book. They would have capsized the book. But so I would believe that I knew so much that I could pretend – to be there mm. when I was writing. So, I, mean, the, I don't know if you find that the process really is almost opposite, it seems to me, so that when you're writing from experience, you spend a lot of time selecting detail. And when you're writing from lack of experience, yeah. you just work your ass off to come up with a detail, <laughs> something yeah. that you can use. One telling detail yeah. that you read like 15 right. books to, f to, to know, not just to hear of, but to know meant what you intuited it, it meant yeah. and that you could put it there for the reader to experience as exemplary, you know? If, you, if your stuff is just full of like, oh, yeah, well, that did happen, so why can't, it can be there because that's, I found it in a book. It's not passing the test that it needs to pass, you know? It's very... Uh, that's actually one of my mantras. You know, yeah. I've, I've got a mantra. Never include anything in a historical novel because it was true. <laughs> it's, a, it's the first yeah. thing you should cut out. Yeah. Um, I mean, this book is realist. 
but not chronological. You, know, you've, you've, yeah. you've, you throw it to the ground and you put it together again as a kind of mosaic. Uh, you obviously thought about that. I mean, what, what's yeah. the sort of thinking that went in? Well, it, go, it goes right to what, what you just uh, were saying. I, I, and it also g- circles back to w- where we began this conversation where I uh, admitted that Cicero and his resistance came really first and was necessary for me to enter this material in that I have such an apprehension about the um, bogus historical novel, about the risk of writing one, that just claims that you can just go back, simply go back, and let's open a window, you know, like this sort of objective time machine. Uh, I have a special portal, and we're going to, you know, if I'd done that kind of book, this book should begin in the 1920s with Rose separating herself from her Jewish family and then proceed, oh, now the 30s and now the 40s and now the 50s, as if I am sharing with you a privileged access. Well, I didn't feel that that uh, was honest enough in terms of how I really experienced the past as this sort of fitful, disputed thing that erupts in lives. You know, when you make family explorations, when you ask, finally ask Uncle Fred, what were you saying that, you know, why were you so angry that day? And he g- suddenly gives you this giant grievance that's, uh, you know, um, enormously disproportionate on the on the subject of the question and has no context, and you're s- stuck with it. You're like, whoa, what was that? Or you yourself quest back and you think, or you look at some picture and it evokes some feeling, but you don't know where it belongs, and the past is an argument. So I wanted the book to feel like you were experiencing Cicero dealing with this undertow of resistance and subjective uh, you know, disagreement. Maybe it was like this, but maybe it was like this. The past is a mosaic. We make it out of present materials, present languages, and we make it out of these inconsistent forays you know, of uh, deciding to recollect or asking someone else to recollect or studying some of the, you know, suddenly, oh, wait, I, you know, I've always known my family came from this place, but what the hell is that place, studying something? And then you, you're stuck with all of the irreconcilable uh, chunks that, that this um, effort has produced. So the book is, I guess, trying to be um, uh, enact its own process of discovery. It, it makes a different kind of claim, I think. You know, it, chronological books uh, tend to make an argument. Things happen because of a succession of events. And you know, you can, like a domino chain, this and then this and then this. And this yeah. book makes a very different argument. You're stuck yeah. in certain moments, and they reflect each other. But you're never quite sure how you get from one moment to the next. Some, there's a sort of magical... Yeah. Should we? You want to read? Should we, should we, I can read just a tiny bit. Should yeah, just, I'm interested questions? In, in, your, in, in, in the questions... Here too, but uh, I thought th- I've been I've been um, wanting to read like some some things that I haven't ever read aloud from this book, and um, the uh, uh, talking about Pete Seeger the last couple of days made me think that I could um, grab onto this very brief bit, but it uh, connects in a way to you know w- one of the things about folk music that interested me so much. I mean it never have articulated this growing up, but it already interested me. And then when I began to be able to apply some thinking to that legacy, I grew up listening to all of those records, and to also to Bob Dylan, all of the things he did subsequently after he sort of kissed off the folk scene. Um, 
was the tension between solidarity and isolation, right? That, you know, that moment when he goes electric and everyone at Newport is scandalized and maybe Pete Seeger tries to cut the cables with an axe. It's such a great apocryphal story. I, you know, it's great that it can't be proved one way or the other. Um, what's at stake there isn't just, you know, like uh, fancy finger-picking on an acoustic guitar versus amplification. It's the idea that they were all in something together and that he made a rival claim of kind of a romantic, individual, alienated expressivity that wasn't about anyone else, and it wasn't going to drag all these guys along with it, and it wasn't, he wasn't advocating for anyone or protesting anything. He was, it was just like an entire premise of community. He just disaffiliated the entire thing with that gesture. And that's the tension that I'm so interested in. You know, American communists, what is it to be <laughs> in this mythic individualistic frontier landscape, self-fulfilling individual destiny, and then also get absorbed in an idea of a collective utopia, that we're all going to do some great thing together and make it for everyone. And the tension in that is, is really deep in the book. So anyway, so... I have a folk singer in the book, and that's what I'm going to read a little bit of his bit. Uh, he's, you know, he's he's not even really Phil Oaks level, um, but he's similar to Phil Oaks in in being someone who can't follow Dylan into personal expression in that way, and his career is going to kind of uh, <coughs> stop. You know, uh, he 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 he's a member of a Irish harmony group and then he has a solo album but he doesn't know what to do next and it's that moment when Dylan is suddenly on the radio singing uh, Like a Rolling Stone and everything's changing so he's in the, um, the Chelsea Hotel trying to write a second album on the command of his uh, producer who says it's time and, uh, and make it personal because that's what people want now and he doesn't he's, he's stuck, he actually has always written his songs this guy in my book by looking at newspaper headlines and, you know, writing about the current events, which sounds really trite when you put it that way. But a lot of folk singers were just, you know, they were emboldened to uh, say something about what was going on. And that, uh, he, that was his, his only procedure. So he's, um, he's there uh, pacing around the room, crossing out faltering song titles in the notebook. And... Um, this is a scene where he, he kind of goes through the lobby and, and overhears some, some Dylan and thinks about it. Um, just, I, I haven't practiced reading this section, so I'll probably have to skip around a little bit to, to make it work. Um, he knotted his shoelaces and thrust himself from the room, leaving the guitar but taking the notebook and pen along just in case. The Chelsea's corridors were as vast and wide as the rooms were cramped and oppressive, though no better appointed. The carpet oiled and ratty with a thousand years' worth of footfalls. Still, the size of the corridor seemed to mock that of his room. The lobby, even worse. Absurd chandeliers and walls thick with paintings and the furniture bobbing everywhere as if at sea. New York hotels had a certain Potemkin village aspect, a false front meant to impress whom with their fulsome public space, meanwhile private quarters narrow as a coffin. Tommy's room was a place to die, not compose an LP's worth of confessional songs, as he'd been commanded. His second album 
will never exist. And Verve Records wants free of his contract and is willing... Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm skipping something I can't skip. Okay, let me do this again. Um, LP's worth of confessional songs is he'd been commanded by Warren Rokich, that's his producer, who in desperation at his client's blockage had booked him five nights in the hotel. Perhaps this was Warren's disguised intent. Enter your room there and die. A second album will never exist, and Verve Records wants free of the contract and is willing to front you a suicide room at the Chelsea Hotel to be free of you. Okay, so now I'm going to skip to... to he's walking through the lobby. Um, he settled into a love seat in the cavernous lobby, devoured his knish, he just bought a knish on the street, and wiped his greasy hands on the seat cushion, then lit a cigarette, deciding to play hotel detective for a stretch, study the comings and goings. Here, passing upstairs, the seemly balding Brit, who'd introduced himself in the corridor, stammering to Tommy that he was writing space fiction, as if in defense against some misunderstanding. It's Arthur C. Clarke, <laughs> who did write at the Chelsea Hotel. At the desk, demanding mail, demanding mail the management had seized in lieu of a payment, the rumored exiled Warhol girl, if she was a girl, of that, no guarantee whatsoever. Occupying the corner by the lobby's front window, decorated with sneers of boredom, two with beetle haircuts and nighttime sunglasses, and at their feet a case for electric guitar and a small amplifier. Tommy supposed they might even be stones or animals or some other benighted subspecies of beetles. <clears throat> the clerk, weary of negotiations with the factory girl, snapped on a transistor radio to drown her out. Mr. Tambourine Man. The summer's first inescapable song, it had lately been overtaken by Dylan's own electrified vitriol. The birds were only another false beetles, softening the world up for Bobby's rant. Dylan's psychedelic weariness was now rendered amazing, apparently, even to teenagers who'd never heard an honest folk song in their lives. Tommy's own weariness amazed only himself, and then only a little. For two weeks now, the new Dylan had poured from every radio in Greenwich Village, from parlor windows thrust wide as if to draw the last shreds of oxygen from the suffocated sidewalks. The tracks sound mercurial and seasick, its scorning inquiry for forcing each lonely person to give account, if only to themselves, how does it feel? Tommy suspected Bobby hadn't a clue in this case, for Dylan had never, like Tommy, been married and felt his wife's attentions slip away. Whatever Dylan's qualifications for being this song's author, the despicable song seemed to magnify loneliness. Each time you heard it, it acted as a mirror, bringing your face disastrously close, forced you to study your gray-fleshed sockets to encounter the red-threaded yolks of your eyes. Was this, at last, Tommy's grievance? Only if he kidded himself that his art reached deeper into his life than he presently suspected it did. He was disgruntled less on his own behalf than on that of Dave Van Ronk and Clayton and so many others, all swallowed and disgorged, all eclipsed, all savaged by this splenetic fusillade pouring from the radio. For what was it to believe yourself part of a cadre of voices, a zone, a scene, a field of engagement defined by its range and relevance? What was it to be a folk if not, well, well, what? What would it embody that wouldn't frighten Tommy to put in words, even to himself? 
Yet the thing that had just now collapsed was a sketch for a better world that might be. Tommy did believe it, however appalling to confess. And so, to think yourself defined, however cursory one's own talent, defined by immersion in a collective voicing deeper than that of which any sole practitioner could be capable, and then to have every third remark be, did you ever open for Dylan? Did you ever meet Dylan? Was Dylan there? Is Dylan coming? Was it like Dylan? I think I saw Dylan. He's a second-rate Dylan. He's no Dylan at all. And why don't we just pull down the signs and rename all the streets here Dylan? The corner of Dylan and Dylan, where I first saw Dylan. But you never see him anymore, do you? Not the likes of you. Was it better or worse to have been there at the princeling Stumblebum's invention? To recognize the community property embedded in Bobby's every utterance? Or to be blissfully ignorant of all he devoured? Thank you. Thank you. That was great. Thanks. We have some questions. Okay, yeah. Just briefly, um, there was talk about historical fiction. Uh, in a way, crudely, one could say historical fiction is the other of science fiction, and you are a science fiction writer. So is there a sort of secret relation between the two, or are they just opposites? Well, yeah. I mean, um, it is really interesting to think of it on those terms, and I sometimes done so unsystematically. I mean, there's that idea of world building, right? That you want to create. And in fact, you know, many people will say, oh, science fiction writers are more interested in the world building than, you know, that that would be a critique or a reservation that they spend so much time making the world that they forget to do the characters or the emotions or other things. Um, I think that the kind of gestures I you know, I, I, as a reader and then as a writer, I never had the appetite for the, like, super thick, dense description. You know, I mean, the ultimate would be, like, uh, Tolkien making up languages and histories and maps for places that don't exist. Or, or Frank Herbert creating the multiple levels of anthropology and, and culture and then setting, you know, thousands and thousands of pages of fiction on this place that he's invented that doesn't exist. I, my gestures, I didn't read those books, or if I did, I got bored or, or just, I don't know, suffocated by that um, effort of investing in that. I read instead more uh, brief and, and um, I guess you might say slightly tending more towards metafictional, kind of the kind of fantastic that throws some metaphors into the air and pretends they're a world that you find in Kafka or Philip K. Dick or um, J.G. Ballard, you know, that, that doesn't spend a tremendous amount of fictional energy kind of uh, building secret uh, anthropologies. And so it didn't prepare me as a reader or as a writer personally for um, what I think of as the kind of thick persuasive textural uh, historical fiction that in some ways I am I'm the, now the reluctant author of. 
it didn't prepare me to be a reader of it, and I didn't like that sort of reading for a very long time. I didn't, yeah, I didn't seek it out in, in, not only because I was reading science fiction, but I didn't seek it out when I was reading other kinds of things either. You know, in fact, uh, sometimes a writer I, I liked would um, switch, would start making thicker worlds because it seemed like it, they were, it was more important and better and richer. I mean, I remember I read Paul Thoreau a lot when I was a teenager, and he started with these slim novels with a lot of character and incident and 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 uh, flavor, but he didn't trouble with a lot of suffusing you in thick description. I remember when he started writing fat novels, I sort of went off Paul Thoreau at that moment. Um, now I might be exactly that guy who switched. I don't know. Um, maybe the teenage me would go off me right here. Yeah. <laughs> I always felt that the the rivalry was with fantasy. And maybe fantasy has you know, less of a serious chops these days than science fiction has been able to claim for itself. Mm -hmm. But you were a science fiction guy as a kid or you were a fantasy kid, and they seemed to proceed from uh, opposed interests. Because the fantasy always had this medievalist thing behind it, yeah. the idea that there was this time in the past when, when things were good and simple yeah, and true. Yeah, in that way, fantasy certainly connects more to – it's like fake historical fiction. But it is true that both – in both realms, even though they were sort of divided, and I identified with the science fiction side when I identified at all. But you could have, as Frank Herbert does in Dune, or I think, you know, there are other ring world, or there are people who invest in kind of endless worlds, bottomless mm -hmm. amounts of facts about these non-existent places, and that makes them similar. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think partly it's also that you want to refer to people's sense of the real world. Mm -hmm. And the thick description you're talking right. about, you can do it in actually in certain kinds of historical novels, but you wouldn't want to do it in the same way in science fiction because the thick description is to stand in for the absence of a real world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds really, really lame in a way because it makes it seem like my commitment was never very real. But I think that, you know, I'll make another division. There are... As an American kid watching television, there were the Twilight Zone kids and the Star Trek kids. And I was a Twilight Zone kid in that I kind of wanted my fantasies to be so thin on the ground that they might always be a hallucination or a nightmare. Uh -huh. I didn't really want there to be uh, a total persuasion. I wanted you to be in that, you know, Alice in Wonderland, uh, you know, kind of su active suspension of disbelief where you were – or, or like, you know, the third policeman, where the metaphor of the, of the fantastical material is as tangible as, as, as it is um, a real world. So uh, let me lay another one on you then. Yeah. Um, and along the lines of the, the, the kind of, for me, family was this anti-political force, and, and in this book it's, it's certainly a politicizing force. I always felt that you know, you'd be two kinds of people, those who think, and actually there are two kinds of novels, and there's a, two kinds of readers of novels, those who read novels because they feel that essentially the world fundamentally stays the same, and those who read novels because essentially the world is fundamentally changing all the time. And I think it's connected to the family thing for me. So what, you know, when I went back wow. to Germany, one of the things that happened to me is I, I read Dickens and Peggotty and David Copperfield, and I, I could see the link between those books and my childhood. And I think... Uh, Part of the interest in the contemporary novel is opposed to all that. Mm. It's, it wants to say that everything is changing right now, and you read the contemporary novel to find out. Does that, does that make sense to you? Yeah, but I don't think the novel's so good at that. So I think I'm on the other side. Okay, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I think that there are a lot of other ways to get the breaking news. Yeah. I mean, it takes just, you know, the contrast with how rapid the delivery systems are <laughs> compared to a novelist grinding away and then your publisher sits on it for at least eight or nine months right. more. It's very, very hard to to think that um, it's the right place for breaking news. What's interesting is the way a novel, especially as I've written uh, longer books that took me longer to write, it's an inadvertent uh, diary, you know, of the – I mean – this is a book that includes public events that hadn't happened when I started the book. Mm. There was no Occupy movement when I set out to write Distant Gardens. So it overtook – reality overtook my subject matter, and I had to abide with that and figure out what the implications were for my project. So there's a journal hidden inside the book of me through those years of my life, you know, stymied, thinking, sitting there, emitting a few words at a time. Uh, and um, – I think it has more to do with connecting, you know, the way you connect, connecting to Dickens, that that life abides, life, you know, human experience is um, a much, much uh, more, um, what, it's like a stretched across history. History happens to it, but it's, it's, um, it's not being transformed by it. Yeah. Um, we, should take, <laughs> yeah. um, we should take at least one more question. There's a guy at the Maybe back a few there. more. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> Your folk singer seems to bear a strong resemblance to Fluin Davis. Yeah, it was a weird thing that happened. Um, so you guys know what the question's about is the, the Cone Brothers' new movie, which has opened here as well, right? So talking about things overtaking you. So it was a very uh, funny moment. It was in, uh, well, it was less than a year ago. It was in, I think, like uh, May that I, this book was in galleys in America. I was correcting the proofs. And someone sent me a link to the trailer for Inside Lewin Davis. And um, I knew, it, this may seem uh, like a ridiculous claim, but I knew in the space of the three-minute trailer that they had used, they had pegged their folk singer on the exact same single source I'd pegged mine, which is Dave Van Ronk's memoir. And I didn't need it told to me. I didn't need to read an interview with him. I didn't need to see the whole film. I, and I just cracked up. I said, we both went to the same well. Uh, because, first of all, Van Ronk was the secret soul of that universe. Um, I mean, I knew this because my mother told me because she hung out with him. And second, the book was great. The book was amazing. It was full of just blazingly telling detail that you wanted to steal all of it. And so I just laughed my head off. I said, oh, God, everyone's going to connect these two things now just because of the common denominator. You know, we're sort of busted. And um, and then I didn't worry about it because it's just, it was just fascinating. So now you know, there there have been these uh, people who have been, you know, if you don't know the Van Ronk book exists, you could be quite mystified of why we both mentioned the Gate of Horn, you know. <laughs> That's that nightclub in the movie that I, I mentioned, the, the, you know, the, the Gate of Horn. It's the nightclub that he goes to in Chicago and sits opposite F. Murray Abraham and doesn't get the gig. So um, both our characters don't get the gig at the Gate of Horn. Yeah. 
uh, more questions? Um, you, you talked about distant gardens quite a lot as, um, in terms of your own personal family history. And yeah. you talked about history, the relationship to history being perhaps an argument. I wonder if you could say something about the relationship between your personal argument with history mm. and um, a bigger argument abroad about the history of the left. Yeah. I mean... That hasn't really been talked about much tonight, the way in which the novel seems to fit in with a lot of current critiques, political critiques, uh -huh. I suppose, about the history of the left. And it's also quite interesting because you've described yourself, you were talking earlier on about perhaps being someone who is a browser and not having a language, and yet your own personal history seems to fit very precisely <laughs> inside of this history of the left. Mm. That's yeah. Well... Um, Thank you for the question, and I'm going to I'm going to try to talk into it. Of course, I'm I'm stuck not knowing exactly which critiques of the left to you seem to be the 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 crucial ones or the dominant ones that the book fits in with, and so I'm I'm hesitant to just um, consent that it does. But I'll, I'll I'll try to say some things about what what I think you're you're feeling. We haven't spoke spoken to here. Yeah, I I mean first of all. For me, I, I, my legacy is uh, a place where those two things are nested. I grew up going to protests. It's something that I was doing before I can remember or sort it out. You know, it was it was a part of um, family life, um, and I identified totally. I really, I really. In fact, I was um, I, I had a supreme childhood naivete that we weren't utterly and obviously conquering and transforming every, you know, task or every purpose that we put ourselves to, it seemed to me. War was bad, and uh, I was so lucky to be in the generation that was finally figuring that out, and it was going to be done now, you know, and, and that, you know, um, feminism was right, and it was amazing it hadn't fixed this sooner, but wow, at least we're doing it now, and that, you know, that that there would remain, or that also, of course, my family was so proud of its investment in civil rights. And I wrote about this in Fortress of Solitude, the bewilderment at um, realizing that uh, we didn't live in the ideal world that I'd, that I'd um, grasped by implication from my parents' uh, you know, um, version of history, that just before I'd come along, there was segregation and wonderful people had just figured that out and fixed it and now we were going to go live in Brooklyn and it was cool because we were all really we got it now and that that put me in this very strange um, place of having to be educated um, by the street reality uh, in the inequities that my parents were sort of uh, had helped me imagine didn't exist uh so it, you know, now, okay, so where does this book stand in relation to a, a critique of the left or critiques of the left? I really think that if you tried to derive a, a thesis from the book, you'd, you'd be helpless. I think the book, like, like many of its characters, contradicts itself very, very deeply by the end. I hope richly. I hope in a pregnant way. 
Now, I'm personally, a, 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 you know, I, um, I don't have to be dodgy about this, uh, kind of a, a, an angry anti-capitalist. And I, I know there's no point in concealing it because my previous book was actually one you could march around under as a banner, I think. Chronic City is a, is a screed against the state of New York City in the, in the, in the era between 9-11 and the economic collapse, the kind of gaudy, ahistorical, stock market's up so nothing matters, the war is far away, and we have no, you know, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a book full of rage against the state of that present moment of the 2004 when we just reelected Bush. This book is not um, distillable into a, 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 a rallying cry or, I think, I believe, into a kind of a, some sort of devastating expose of left uh, fallacies. It's not uh, – it's full of feelings and confusions and, and, and uh, turbulent um, – remorse about things that went on in, in various movements, but it's also very much about the mystery of the abiding passion to change the world and where it goes when it's, uh, when it's ostensibly smothered. You know, when, and so this applies to the claim that Occupy meant nothing because it vanished, because they're not in the streets anymore. It applies as much to that as to the question of what happens to the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of committed American communists when their uh, their idealisms about the Soviet Union end up humiliated and they fall like my grandmother into a kind of uh, rageful silence about their their life's course. You know, I uh, I don't know how these things go on, but I know they're inside the bodies of the people who felt them and believed them. They they they, they don't stop existing and. So I'm just very much trying to measure how, what the costs are, are and, 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 and why it's necessary anyway <laughs> to feel the way I do. You know, um, and you know, it's a, for me, it's, I believe it's a very embracing book. I mean, I, I care about every character in it, uh, you know, however much I may seem to be uh, sadistically exposing them at times. I, you know, I couldn't have, I couldn't have written a, a saga of the right because I don't – not just because, you know, I would have like, oh, that's a bad way to spend five years thinking about the right, <laughs> but because I don't know enough. I don't know enough how it feels to feel that way. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What, is there time for one or two more? That was big and heavy. Maybe it could be something. Hi. Asked about uh, Motherless Brooklyn and how you how you found the voice, thank you, which is so amazing. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so that's the the book uh, is narrated from the character who has Tourette's, and in a way, the the first person narrative uh, is full of ticks. It's full of these word inversions and and uh, um, kind of wrinkles that that um, that come out of the or are claimed by the book to come out of the neurological condition of having Tourette syndrome. I, I came to the subject uh, the way probably almost anyone might by reading uh, Oliver Sacks. And this was, uh, you know, I was, I was reading uh, about Tourette syndrome 
in um, there's an essay in The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat and another one in An Anthropologist on Mars. And this was in the 90s, and uh, Tourette's syndrome wasn't as famous as it has become. And I don't mean to claim that my book is the reason, but there, subsequently there have been a lot of movie characters and comedians will make jokes about it, and it's like a familiar part of the tapestry of popular culture now. It really wasn't, and uh, certainly I was in my, you know, I was in my 30s, and I hadn't heard of it until I read about it in Saks. And I think that was more possible then. It was it was less less well um, less often mentioned, let's just say. And so it came to me in a like a kind of a shock that there was this dis- description of a neurological disorder that reminded me so much of the way I wrote. <laughs> And I didn't feel like, oh, wait, I must be diagnosable because I knew I wasn't going through the things that these patients were enduring. It's a very hard road to have all these outward symptoms. But everything Sachs said, and he, you know, if you've read him, you know he's so good at connecting the, the unusual and extraordinary neurological disorders with descriptions, literary, evocative, humane descriptions that make you feel you get it. And I felt... He's actually telling me things about the way I make up uh, metaphors and the way I play with language and the way I've invented the names in my earlier books that all seem attributable in his description to this thing. And his character, his uh, not characters, his patients in these case studies seem to me like like they're relevant to me and urgent to me. And I was just suddenly had this overwhelming uh, sense of identification. So I wrote it by exploring that feeling, which you, you could say in a way is an egregious misunderstanding, right? I mean, I, unless you have a vision of Tourette's as being on a spectrum and I'm, I'm someone who maybe is on that spectrum but, like, right to the edge of my skull. It doesn't come out. So I don't know. Maybe it's just a wrong guess on my part. But the description meant so much to me that I just decided to embrace it. And so it's written, you know, in a way autobiographically. I, I decided that my language was all being generated by this disorder and that I would I would uh, kind of claim it through this character. So for the period of time that I was writing the book, that was my stance. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for coming. And, Benjamin, thank you so much for Thanks. doing this. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.